You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Let's go. Hurry up. It's not my fault. Just shut up and run. Hold it right there. Harry was a small-time crook. Oh, boy. Till he opened the door. Oh, no, no, we're not ready for your audition. Just take him, he's ready. You ready, right? To a really big break. Quit acting like the good guy. You got your partner killed. You killed him. See, this is what I'm talking about. Old-school method. Give me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. Oh, you're the uh, consultant. If he wants to act the part. You must be Gabe Perry. Still gay? Me? No. I just like the name so much, I can't get rid of it. So what do you do? I'm a private detective. She thinks I'm a detective. Of all the idiot things to do. My sister. Are you going to help me? I got to check my schedule. Can you help me, Harry? Because you're not going to help me find somebody else. Sometimes I have other, my caseload is is pretty. Thank you. From Shane Black, the creator of Lethal Weapon. Do not play detective. Moron. Go home before the bad guys do something bad to you. Two corpses in three hours. I mean, that's unusual, right? Yes. Comes a mystery. It's a frame up. First things first. You have the corpse. I, I got rid of it. You threw it away. Yeah. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. The definition of the word idiot. Ow. It starts with a kiss. Why'd you lie to me? It was an excuse to stay around you, so I mean, I think... Ow! Did I just cut off your finger? Yeah. It's on the floor. Pick it up. Pick it up. And ends with a bang. Where is the girl? <laughs> you put a live round in that gun. Oh, yeah. There was like an 8% chance. Eight. Was... Who taught you math? Robert Downey Jr. What do you think, I'm stupid? Val Kilmer. Yes, I think you're stupid. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Oh, hell. Kiss me. What? Kiss me. No, no, no. No, no, no. These lessons suck. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. That's me, Twitter War Notes, standing next to punk rock Steven Seagal. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andrew Nettie. Okay, you've got 30 of my fucking seconds. Thrill me. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are talking about Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Released in 2005, the film stars Robert Downey Jr. as Harry Lockhart, a two-bit thief who lucks his way into a Hollywood audition, which puts him on a very crooked path of playing detective, along with Val Kilmer as Gay Perry. The film pays homage to pulp detectives of old by way of the slick writing style of Black and his directing debut. If you haven't seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, we're going to be spoiling the heck out of this, as well as a few other Shane Black movies as we go on, so you have been warned. So, Jedediah, when was the first time you saw Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and what did you think? I was anticipating it when it came out, all the stories about Black uh, coming back after a decade away, but I was in no place to see it during its theatrical run. I had a very pregnant wife and a one-year-old in the house, so uh, I did not get to see it till it was on DVD. I enjoyed it the first time I saw it, but it's one that has only grown in my estimation with each subsequent uh, viewing. Very first time I saw it, I actually cannot remember a single concrete impression 
but I, I know I liked it enough to keep coming back. How about you, Andrew? Similar to Jed, actually. I think I I can't look. I can't remember when I saw it. I think I saw it on DVD about ten years ago. I thought it was okay. I mean, I'm a, you know, but I didn't think it was brilliant. It didn't really stay in my mind. It was a film that, and then I only rewatched it. Well, I know we were originally going to do this podcast um, last year, and then we got we got we got sort of delayed a bit. But I rewatched it late last year. I rewatched it again more recently. It's grown on me. I was reading some commentary about the film that said that it actually is a best watched once and the initial impression that it leaves with you. But I disagree with that. This is a film that actually has grown on me and impressed me more the more times I've seen it. I actually saw this in the theater. I was very happy. I went to see this with my friend Mike Thompson, who's been on the show before, and I didn't really know anything about it going in, and I was just delighted by it. He had told me a little bit about the script. He had told me a little bit about the end scene of Robert Downey Jr. in the hospital, Harry in the hospital, and just that it was supposed to be a lot more people coming in, all the dead people that come in, including Elvis and a few other folks. That got me hooked, and I fucking love this movie. It has, um, every time I watch it, I catch something new. I love the way that the dialogue is, and this movie really, I mean, I I grew up watching Robert Downey Jr. movies. I went to see Lesson Zero in high school, saw Weird Science when it was uh, on cable all the time, but I also got to see The Decline of Robert Downey Jr., and this was the movie that really put him back on the map for me, and so when they cast him as Iron Man, I was just like, okay, that's cool. This is the perfect role for him coming back as a recovered alcoholic drug abuser, just like Tony Stark is, I knew that he had the chops just because even though this movie is not ad-libbed, it always feels like everything that Robert Downey Jr. is saying is ad-libbed. He's just got that ability to make everything seem like he's just thinking it up on the spot. It's fantastic in that way. When I saw this first time, what I'd actually seen of Downey Jr.'s previously the most recent thing and it was probably it was probably was less than zero so it was certainly a considerable jump in my estimations on that one that's for sure yeah i had seen him in the singing detective and even though you know friend of the show keith gordon directed that i was not that impressed with singing detective i don't know if it just kind of put me off the whole conceit of it the the whole dennis potter original and just the way that it kind of played with the detective with the horrible psoriasis versus the the dreams, the fantasies that he have had. And I was just like, okay, well, that was okay. But yeah, I guess before that was probably like Bowfinger, which I barely remember him in, or U.S. Marshals, where I could just tell that, he, you know, he telegraphed everything in that movie. That movie, well, it wasn't that great of a movie, but it was halfway decent. I have to put a plug in, sorry, True Believer. The first of a couple of James Woods films, I will. I know that James Woods is a bit of a bugbear with you. He never returns your phone calls, Mike. I thought he was quite good in True Believer, that crime story, and I loved him because I lived there in the 1990s and it's the only American film I've ever seen that's been sit there. I loved him in Air America, the one about the secret CIA airline in um, – in Laos in the 1960s during the, during the Secret War in Laos. But, yeah, it's um, pretty sparse aside from that leading up to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, that's for sure. Well, I say, I mean, he made a big impression on me in Shortcuts. 
I worked at a movie theater when Natural Born Killers was come came out. I saw it, you know, probably five or six times in the theater. Richard the Third also was a big one for me. Uh, I actually saw U.S. Marshals at the theater and enjoyed it. In Dreams, you know, the uh, Neil Jordan movie, I remember having really hot and cold reactions to it. Not a very good movie, but something I thought was a lot of fun just to look at. And I, I remember being feeling like he was particularly effective. And of course, I was a much younger person uh, then. I totally missed that he was away. I, I do remember that people were making a big deal about the about his comeback. But really, Shane Black coming back was uh, the big interest for me going into it. And it was funny seeing uh, Shane Black, because I grew up with Lethal Weapon and, and uh, Last Boy Scout and um, Monster Squad and all that stuff. It's funny, when you hear Shane Black direct his own scripts, when you rewatch Tony Scott or Richard Donner, uh, Rennie Harlan, or you know whoever did his scripts previously, after seeing Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and uh, The Nice Guys, I can't help but hearing Ryan uh, Gosling or Robert Downey Jr. or you know somebody like that delivering the lines in those older movies. It totally changes the feel of the movie to me. I was young enough that when Lethal Weapon came out, like. Yeah, it had some laughs in it, but that was a very serious movie to me. It was a very serious movie, and you know, I, I felt very emotionally tied to the uh, the stakes in it. And Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I I like a lot, but it doesn't, uh, you know, even like Last Boy Scout and things like that felt very serious to me, and and still have kind of a they lean harder into some of the emotional uh, beats, but. Um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was so effervescent when it came out. I enjoyed it, but I didn't feel a thing, if that makes any sense. And 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 watching it now, I'm not sure that I feel anything still, but I, I enjoy it, enjoy the hell out of it. It's interesting. We never really took Danny Jr. seriously before Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. We we can we can sort of talk about various films we saw him in. Please let's not talk about natural born killers. Um, but there's you know other things. But post Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, he really we jumped to Iron Man. But he also made that I don't know if anyone's seen that terrific film Fur, an imaginary portrait of Diane, two thousand and six. He's absolutely stunning in that in that sort of re, that sort of alternative biopic of um, of the photographer Diane Arbus. He's absolutely amazing in that. That's and Zodiac, of course, which he did in two thousand and seven, which I I think you're both fans of. Yeah, and he's he's amazing at as well. So he's not just so he really that was the start of the um, I can't rhyme Robert Downey Jr. with uh, Renaissance in any kind of way, but you know that was the start of the Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> Renaissance, wasn't it? The Downey Sons. Junior Sons. Thank you so much. Yes, the Downey Sons. He really took off after that, and I did see Good Night and Good Luck as well, but I can't remember what he was in that. He started going up at that point, and I think Val Kilmer had already started going down, and now it's like Val Kilmer just has these like dead cat bounce moments where you're just like, oh, I remember how much I like Val Kilmer. Oh, wow. Yeah, but most of the time it's like, what is this straight-to-DVD garbage that I am sitting through? Because there are so many awful things that he's been in lately where you're just like, please, give me the Val Kilmer of old, because that's the guy who I really loved. Loved him so much in so many of the movies that he did. 
but now it's yeah, it's just not there. And just the chemistry between Downey and Kilmer, oh my God, it's fantastic. And and Kilmer's another guy. I mean, some of these exchanges that they have, the whole thing about the uh, the uh, the talking monkey. You got five bucks, Des. You could still get them. Really? That's funny. I got a ten, says pass the pepper. I got two quarters, sing harmony on Moonlight in Vermont. What? Talking money. A talking monkey? Talking monkey, yeah. Yeah, came here from the future. Ugly sucker, only says ficus. I, I noticed that in their filmographies, both of them have a blank spot in uh, 2001 releases. So, you know, um, you know that's an uh, astute uh, observation that uh, Downey Jr. begins his ascension there. And, and, and really, when you're talking about percentage of quality projects, Kilmer definitely goes down afterward. But, you know, just the year before, uh, in 2004, he'd done David Mamet's Spartan, which I oh, I love that movie. And, you know, terrific film, a, terrific film. Yep, and it's another very precise, very stylized, yet completely different dialogue-heavy movie. You know that he is nailing, nailing. So yeah, it's like I don't know. It's not like his quality of performance had dropped off at that point or something, but. Uh, yeah, to do those two movies essentially back to back, I don't know how he didn't have just a huge, huge decade. And I also liked Wonderland, which came the year before. And I was a huge fan of the Salton Sea from two thousand two. Oh yeah, I have a soft spot for um, the Saint, which actually is a terrible film, actually. But really, I saw it in a cinema in Czechoslovakia in nineteen ninety seven, or the Czech Republic as it's now known in nineteen ninety seven, and just really. Really liked it, but isn't he supposed to be incredibly difficult? I mean, I I wanted to see that making of the island of Doctor Moreau documentary. Oh, it's fantastic! That documentary is wonderful. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to look at that, but I mean, he and he and Brando apparently single handedly sabotaged that entire shoot. So I mean, I thought I think that and that was the start of his decline, wasn't it? As a as a in terms of his career, but also in terms of people wanting to work with him. I thought. Yeah, that's probably fair. If you watch the commentary on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you know, sometimes people get a, a reputation that, that you're not sure it's entirely uh, entirely deserved. And he's great in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And it's clear that, you know, he gives a great performance in it. But, man, the commentary track, you can almost hear Downey Jr. and Shane Black. <laughs> Just kind of like, oh, my God, we're working with this guy again. Oh. You know, he's he's just kind of taken over and, and it's um he's funny sometimes on the commentary track, but it's uh it's like, oh, kinda getting a glimpse of uh of what a handful uh he could be. <laughs> I suppose there is also the sense from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that potentially Kilmer is actually playing himself. Speaking of Doctor Moreau, very early in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang when, when Robert Downey Jr. stumbles into the uh, the audition and Larry Miller's line about his method acting, you know, he's like, oh, Brando. That made me think that's actually a Val Kilmer reference. He's, <laughs> he's referencing Dr. Moreau uh, presence here in the room. Going back to your earlier point, Chad, I can see what you're talking about when it comes to the seriousness of Lethal Weapon, Last Boy Scout, even Long Kiss Goodnight, just that there are those moments like 
fucking rigs with the, his gun trying to commit suicide in his um the trailer by the ocean or um when the uh i think it is it Halle Berry that dies in the last boy scout and just those really really super serious moments and you do get comedy mixed in there but it's not that kind of whiplash that you get in kiss kiss bang bang though i appreciate it it's like almost every time there's a gunfight or violence, there's the immediate laugh afterwards. So it kind of keeps you off balance, but you know you're going to go back to the laugh eventually. So it never feels too dark. Like those moments of darkness that are with you throughout Lethal Weapon are, we never get as dark as that. And I think we get much more light than that. Yeah. And now when I watch Lethal Weapon, which I still do, I probably watch it once a year at this point. I hear Ryan Gosling uh, <laughs> coming out of, you know, I hear the way he would have delivered those lines directed by Shane Black rather than Mel Gibson, you know, and it's it's a totally different movie. And, you know, it's one I love Lethal Weapon, but frankly, I'd like to see the Shane Black directed version now. If I could pick anybody to just keep making movies every two years, at least if we got to get buddy crime movies, I'd do Shane Black. I'd be up for, for re-upping that every couple of years, for sure. People talk about the Shane Black formula. I read commentary talking about the Shane Black formula. And obviously that thing, it's one of the things is is what you just picked up on there, Jeb, which is the whole buddy movie thing. He does he does great buddy movies. He's also um, dark as fuck. The Last Boy Scout is an incredibly misanthropic, dark film. Uh, the Lethal Weapon films, which I, I don't watch every year, but they, you know, they pop up on late-night television every now and again, and I re-watch them. I, they're, they're incredibly dark. And actually, this film, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, despite its sort of humour and the fact it moves really well and it's a really put, put to, beautifully put-together film, God, it's dark as hell. I mean, when you know the Russian roulette scene. Where Downey Jr. is doing that, you know, and that's a very common sort of scene in a sort of crime film where they basically do that, you know, I'm going to pretend to do the Russian roulette with you and I'm going to get you to, con- you know, I'm the bad guy, one of the goons, and I'm going to get you co- to confess what you do. I want you to picture a bullet inside your head. Can you do that for me? Fuck you. Anyway, that's ambiguous. Ambiguous? No, I don't think so. No, I think he means that when you say picture it inside your head, okay, is that a bullet will be inside your head or picture it in your head? Like Harry, an image. He's got Look, a point. I don't know anything about a girl, seriously. I was bluffing. You know what? I think that you are bluffing right now. Harry, what are you doing? Well, what I'm doing for the guy who likes to bluff is I'm playing a little game called Am I Bluffing? Huh? Where is she? Where the fuck is Harmony? Harry. You want to play hardball? I can do that. Where? Is the girl? What did you just do? I just I put in one bullet, didn't I? I you put, put a one. live round in that gun. Oh well, yeah, there was like an eight percent chance. Eight percent? Eight? Eight? Yeah. Who taught you math? More? I don't know. There's a fairly high body count. The whole um, sexual abuse subtext in this film. There's a darkness in it, as well as those incredibly light comedy, comedic sort of things. Um, and I think that's one of the things I really. Thinking about Black, he really treads the line so much in terms of dark and light and so much in terms of things you think, oh, that's a bit hardcore, and then it just moves so quickly. You sort of either you just move on with it or you just think, oh, and then something funny happens immediately after. I mean, and there's a lot in this film too that treads the line 
in terms of, uh, you know, offensive or politically correct, incorrect sort of stuff, the whole thing about the faggot gun, there's the, you know, there's there's a lot of the banter he has with, with Gay Perry. It's kind of subversive, but it's it, it, it's dark as well. And you're sort of, you're thinking, oh, I don't know what to, quite what to make of that. But then the, the film moves, he, he, he has, or has this, he doesn't dwell on it, it just moves so quickly that you sort of, you move on to the next thing sort of. Yeah, it's very, very fast-paced. It's like those dark moments don't even really get a chance to land sometimes because you're immediately off to the, the next thing or the next laugh. Talking about Black, I think one of his major themes across his body of work, you know, I cannot, I, I, I'm, I'm about to put my foot in my mouth, I feel like, but I can't think of any kids in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But throughout his uh, filmography in the projects he writes and the ones he directs, there's often children in there and they represent, you know, especially in like the nice guys, uh, it's, it's much more explicit, but the, you know, it's, it's children being exposed to terrible things when they're young. So I guess you got the flashbacks with Harmony and her sister and the domestic abuse and, and, um, you know, even Harmony gets hit by her father right before the, uh, the opening credits start, you know, he rears back his fist to, to slap her, but it, it plays as a laugh really, you know, she's, pretending to be sawed in half and screaming and they open the basket and she's like, oh, I'm going to be an actress. And he hauls back to hit her and freeze frame and credits. But it's children dealing with incredibly dark things, whether it's straight for laughs like monster squad, where it's, you know, children are the only ones really equipped to deal with the horrific uh, apocalypse about to descend on them, or it's very explicit in the nice guys where you have children, when you look at Lethal Weapon and the nice guys, and the the reason I hear Ryan Gosling coming out of uh, Mel Gibson's mouth now is that, uh, you know, Ryan Gosling, he's the drunk, burnout, lost his wife guy, and he's a horrible father. He's a horrible father, but his daughter's okay. Yeah, he talks about uh, how upset he is about his daughter's prospects when, you know, being exposed to pornography and the loss of etiquette between gentlemen and ladies, the time of gentlemen and ladies is over. And uh, he's got to deal with the She's going to deal with the chets of the world for the rest of her life. But there's this dichotomy between all kids are being exposed to terrible things throughout his films. Some of them turn out fine and some of them turn out fucked up. It doesn't seem to make that much of a difference what they're exposed to. There seems to be an equal number of real turds and uh, real gems between the the kids exposed to things. So if I had to pick one major theme uh, throughout his, his work, that seems to be the thing. I'd be interested in hearing more about his childhood, maybe, or, or uh, siblings or people he knew growing up and how they turned out. I'd be really interested to find out what his relationship was like with his father, just because you get that moment. You know, you talked about how Harmony's father was abusing the sister, how he was hauling back to slap Harmony. You get that moment almost at the very end of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where all of a sudden Gay Perry and Harry start talking about their fathers, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere. How about you, Harry? Did your father love you? Uh, sometimes, you know, when I dressed up like a bottle. Butchers. Well, he used to beat me in Morris Code, so it's possible, but he never actually said the words. Where did this come from? This just seems so out of left field. I mean, it's 
fucking hilarious and sad at the same time, which really encapsulates all the Black's work for me. But it's just like, where did this come from? Yeah, is this kind of like what we're you know what what we're dealing with here the, is this whole bad father thing that goes throughout the entire movie. I mean, the bad guy in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Good thing I gave a spoiler warning is Dexter Fletcher and this whole idea of him setting up all this stuff so that he can get this money and then killing people. And he's, you know, the, the, the heart of the story is a, is a bad father. The thing that I love so much about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and that makes the movie stand out so much for me is the use of the voiceover and how the voiceover plays with time plays with the film that Harry is in control of the film and how we see this. And he's this director at the same time. He is a player and just the way that he is in control of going back and forth and that the film actually stops that you're trying to figure out, is this the present? Is this a flashback because we are hearing Harry talk about things in the past, but he's also talking about things in the present then he will do flashbacks within the story. He will do cutaways to like the first woman that he meets. And we see her getting her head ripped off in a monster movie when she says she's an actress, just all those things that he shouldn't be privy to, but we're seeing as an audience member. It's very reminiscent to me of sunset Boulevard parts of that, you know, especially that first scene where we see him by the swimming pool. And the narration really made me think of, of Sunset Boulevard and, um, and the narration in that. Linking to this, one of the things I found most fascinating in this film, and I didn't pick it up on the first viewing, and I, I probably think I probably picked, it took me about three viewings to start picking up that this is really how sophisticated, and the narrative is a big, the narration is a big part of this, how sophisticated the story is. In a sense, it, it's, it's like a metafiction. The way that it thinks and talks about itself, it's a very self-conscious film. There's stories within stories. There's also the whole um, ways that it rips off pop culture. I love the um, the whole pulp author, Brett. You know the Brett Halliday, um, Johnny the, the take the Johnny Gossamer novels uh, aspect of it. I thought that was just terrific, and that comes in and comes out. So it's actually a it's a neo noir set in L.A., which has this really convoluted narrative that riffs off so many films, but within that there's also this sort of, you know, meta-narrative about this pulp novel and this pulp writer who does, you know, who does these um, Johnny Gossamer novels. I love the fact that it, that Harmony is the one reading them. So she's also, she's a woman, and, of course, the, the accepted sort of um, wisdom about pulp which i think is quite incorrect is that you know only men read pulp fiction and only read men read crime pulp in the 50s and 60s and 70s i think that's totally false and i love the way that that black plays with that and i love the way it talks about itself as a as a as a whole series of interconnected stories i'm not sure i'm sort of doing justice to it but it's sort of and i did did foreshadow i was going to drop at least one french philosopher into this, and I'm going to drop them now, which is Roland Bart. I love the way in early on they're, they're talking about Harmony loving the John, Johnny Gossamer novels, and she says, um, you know, and this is Downey's narration, before he died, the guy who wrote the book said Johnny Gossamer was a joke. He wrote it for the money, and it was all bullshit. Harmony ignored this. She knew better. I mean, who the hell was he? 
He was just a writer. It's almost like Black, I don't know how philosophical a, a, a cat Shane Black is, but it's almost like he's, he's mainlining sort of um, French literary critic Roland Barthes' The Death of an Author, you know, talking about the way that the writer and their creation are completely unrelated and that the actual creation, the writing, can have a totally separate life and be interpreted in totally separate ways to the to the to the actual author that wrote it. There's a, there's a lot going on in this film in terms of in terms of the narrative and how it's all put together. Yeah, I wonder how much of that too is his uh, commentary on the way other directors handled his material. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I wrote it, I put all this into it, but it didn't turn out the way. You know, what do I know? I'm just the writer. You know, I. Uh, it, it w- they would have been very different films if if they had a single author. He starts by the pool, very Joe Gillis. He introduces us to his life back in New York, and I'm not sure how much time has passed between when he was in New York breaking into a toy store to get a toy for his unseen kid versus – I think he was supposed to get cyber agent, but he was getting protocop and then protocop. The actor in the suit breaks into Harmony's uh, house. And that's definitely at Christmas time because he comes in protocop comes in and is eating the rather than milk and cookies, it's cookies and beer. And I'm imagining it's Gennaro beer that he's uh, got right there. And I'm wondering, is this like the previous Christmas? Has it taken us that long? Because, of course, that's the other Shane Black thing is everything has to be set at Christmas. And it's just such an important time of year for him, apparently, in that is this the previous year or was it just a few weeks that happened between when Protocop breaks into Harmony's place and when she's at this Hollywood party? I think it's a matter of days. Days? Okay. Larry Miller got him out there right away then, it sounds like, just to – and I love that this whole thing when Perry reveals to him that he is just out there to drive down Colin Farrell's price. There was a, like a plot point, pretty much like a season long plot point in the first season of Entourage, which had just come out. And I think uh, maybe Val Kilmer had been in uh, a little bit, but um, and it was about Colin Farrell, about the, the main star of, of uh, Entourage was his whole struggle to get a movie made was really about uh, outmaneuvering Colin Farrell for a role, which I don't know. It, that stuck out to me because apparently I think that's I saw very Entourage. Bra- that's very brave of you, Jed, to actually admit that you watched Entourage. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I did. And the other thing, too, was that he had just, Kilmer had just been in Alexander with Colin Farrell as well. That's, well, that's true. a terrible that's, piece of crap. It is a terrible yeah. piece of crap, yes. <laughs> All right, have me on the Alexander episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we talking about the director's cut or the cut that I saw when I went to see it at theaters? I don't care. Okay, all right, sounds good. <laughs> It is very smart, this whole Johnny Gossmer thing that they have in here, and that there are all these callbacks. That we actually have chapters to this movie that we've got the days being named after things that Raymond Chandler wrote, which is so nice that you have these like Trouble is My Business, The Little Sister, The Lady in the Lake, uh, Farewell My Lovely, and that each of those actually plays into what's happening in the movie. It's not just a 
throw away, look at me, I'm clever kind of thing, but you actually do have a lady in a lake. You are talking about a little sister. So it is very smart the way that he does that as well. And that's one of the, the other things that I like about this movie so much. It's not just being clever to be clever. It's not just throwing in those references that we get if we watched Entourage or know about Alexander, that it's very smart. Tarantino does this as well. But I feel like Black is cleverer about it than Tarantino is, certainly in this film. You know, the way it's it with the Tarantino films, you know, he drops something in there and bang, it's very obviously dropped in and we, we all we all sit around and we go, Oh look, that's been dropped in, isn't that interesting? But Black just throws so much of this stuff in there and it sort of it flows really beautifully. I mean, as you say, there's that homage to Chandler in terms of both the story from the big, you know, from, from from the title headings, you know, the chapter headings, but also the way it riffs on the idea of PIs and things like that. There's, God, there's the homage to Sunset Boulevard at the beginning. There's, I think there's, you know, there's the there's the name Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is Pauline Kael's 1968, you know, collection of liter of film criticism. But there's also, you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was the the name a Japanese journalist gave James Bond. There's a lot in there, and, and Black doesn't sort of dwell on it, or, or it's not there. It's it's great. My favorite of those uh, of those Chandler callbacks is uh, "Farewell, My Lovely," um, because that chapter is uh, the one, or rather, that that novel is the one that deals with you know that um, Marlowe gets thrown into the uh, the booby hatch, the uh, the asylum, you know, the sanitarium. Twist is handled in that in that uh, that chapter. I liked that a lot. That was really nice. And yeah, it got me really thinking about the way that asylums are used in Pulp Fiction and just that it always seemed to be such a, such a position of powerlessness that it was always like so many of the detectives were fighting against City Hall. And once you were thrown into the booby hatch, that was it. You know, they had won. I, I remember specifically, I think it was, uh, either the second or third, John D. McDonald book when Travis McGee is thrown into the booby hatch. And it was so similar to what had happened to Marlowe in Farewell, My Lovely, a.k.a. Um, Murder, My Sweet, um, when Dick Powell was in it. And yeah, it's just those. I'm glad that they didn't get trapped in there. But that whole idea of being able to stash that daughter, the fake daughter, and that she was, um, or actually she might have been the real daughter. And, and some of those things, too. Talk about Chandler-esque. We think we know how the story is going, and they even, quote-unquote, solve the mystery at one point, and then Gay Perry at the end is just like, yeah, no, you're wrong. What we thought was not it, and then he re-explains things. And they even have a moment, I think it's about an hour into the movie, where they stop and recap the whole plot and talk about what's going on. And it's they don't call attention to it, but they do have this moment where they're just like, okay, well, this is happening, and this has happened, and they basically put everything together in case you're not following along with it. They feel like it's the end of the, uh, the end of the movie. We were talking about references before. And one of my favorite references in here, well, it's both a reference as well as one of those narrative moments where Harry actually calls it out and says, why was that in the movie? Gee, you think maybe it'll come back later? Maybe? I hate that. A TV's on talking about the new power plant. Hmm. Wonder where the climax will happen. Or that shot of the cook in Hunt for Red October. So anyway, sorry. 
be hard pressed to think of a film which has got so many meta narratives going on than this one. It really that that talks about it more over talks about itself as a sort of product more overtly than than this one does. Is it future casting or is it um you know was was Michelle Monaghan already cast in Gone Baby Gone when she was doing Kiss Kiss Bang Bang because her name of course in Gone Baby Gone which is based on the books by Dennis Lehane is Angie Gennaro and she's the spokesperson for Gennaro's beer in uh Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that that always stood out to me because I first I think really noticed her in Gone Baby Gone when I was like oh who's this person and I was like, oh, yeah, I'd seen her in, in uh, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. But I, she's all, always tied to Gennaro in my mind for that reason. I kept thinking, well, wait, didn't Black write uh, Die Hard? And I know he didn't, but I keep thinking of Holly Gennaro. Every time they say Gennaro's beer, I think of Holly Gennaro. I missed you. I guess you didn't miss my name, though, huh? Except maybe when you're signing checks. It's just when did you start using Ms. Gennaro? So what about Harry and Perry? I mean, how how come we never get him get to hear him referenced as Harry and Perry? Because that that seems like a very a very deliberate like that's where you start the screenplay from. Well, it's this uh, detective duo named Harry and Perry, and uh, they never get called that in the movie. But I, I like the names, and I think Gay Perry is probably the strongest uh, joke that. I, impression from my very first viewing. I remember chuckling about that for for days. Still gay? Me? No. I'm knee-deep in pussy. I just like the name so much. I can't get rid of it. Gay Perry certainly has the best lines. And I mean, that plays into that, that Shane Black, that, that other part of the Shane Black formula, which we've talked about. So not so much the buddy movies, but those sort of duos where one is sort of tough and hard and the real thing. And the other is sort of a bit softer, not not stupid, but not the real thing. And they sort of buddy up. They sort of buddy up and and, and play off each other's strengths and weaknesses. And there's this sort of very male, masculine, derogatory but very funny sort of banter between them. I, I thought that too, Jed. I thought you know when I first time I saw it, the one thing that did stand out to me was Gay Perry being gay because how many crime films did you see in 2005 where the main character is a tough gay PI? Not a lot. And I know that, I know they've existed, but there, there's not a lot of them. And I mean, Black plays off that really well. And you, stuff that's kind of, as I saying before, a bit borderline, but he gets he gets away with all those borderline quips. Well, and that Perry is always right. He's so much smarter than Harry. Harry just lucks into things, and that Harry is a really not very intelligent person that he thinks that by having one bullet in the chamber gives him an 8% chance of shooting that guy in the head, the whole thing. And this always gets me the whole thing about the adverbs and the adjectives that always cracks me up. I love that. And I love that he's bouncing between and we haven't really, you know, you, you mentioned Michelle Monaghan. She is so strong in this movie and she plays such a great role too. And she's not just this damsel in distress that she is the one who you know is trying to call up to harry's room she hears the cops talking about something happening in harry's room and immediately is like oh no i was on the fifth floor it's on the fifth floor and like gives them a bum's rap to go to the wrong place that she is right there with these guys and she's figuring out stuff 
much faster than Harry is. And I think really there probably aren't too many things that he figures out on his own if he hadn't read it in a Johnny Gossamer novel. Clearly I'm interrupting. I feel badly. Let me, what are you drinking? Bad. Bad. Sorry. Feel bad. You feel bad. Bad. Mm, Badly is an adverb. So to say you feel badly would be saying that the mechanism which allows you to feel is broken. Go. Sleep badly. Bad. Excuse me? Sleep bad. Because otherwise it makes it seem like the mechanism that allows you to sleep. What? Fuckhead badly's an adverb. Who taught you grammar? Get out. Vanish. Yeah, I don't know that he's not intelligent, but he's not educated. He thinks fast. He kind of thinks fast on his feet. He he survives. He, you know, he, I mean, we see that at the very beginning when he ad libs, you know, he's not an actor, but he realizes where he's at. I'm in an audition, <laughs> even though uh, his emotions get carried away. You know, he's got the poise to stand there and deliver the lines while uh, the, you know, cops are looking for him. And, and so he adapts. He's fast on his feet. He's not educated. And Perry is very concerned with his lack of education. Who taught you grammar and who taught you math are recurring uh, concerns of Perry's. Uh, he's very concerned about Harry's education. I agree with you, Mike, that I think uh, Michelle Monaghan is a great character. She's great in this. And it's a, it's a three-way buddy movie. She makes it effectively into a three-way buddy movie. And she I brings actually, the harmony in it, in the yeah. relationship. And I, th- I actually think it's one of, my, one of the few things that jarred with me about this film is at the very end, we don't actually see her. She's written out. So they have that, they have that scene where um, Downey Jr. and... Um, and Val Kilmer's character get to have the final last-minute banter, but we don't have any sort of conclusion for um, for Harmony's character, which kind of pissed me off a little bit. That was the only thing about the film that kind of really annoyed me. I think that was a write-in. That wasn't in the original script, right? That was like a pickup day, uh, just kind of riffing on things after some studio notes or something. It looks strange. I've I've always been very concerned well not concerned but i've always been interested in the end of the movie first off the scene of they all three go back to indiana for the funeral and then it is perry who comes in and yells at the dad and it's like oh okay or slaps the dad around i think and it's just like oh wow okay why isn't this harry or harmony so this is really strange that is Harry in his only real solo scene that we get. And then, yeah, that that uh, ending scene with Downey talking to the camera and then Perry coming in. And this looks like Val Kilmer, maybe 50 pounds heavier than he was in the rest of the movie. And I'm just like, okay, was this the first day or was this he's already like getting ready for something else? Or, yeah, how many months after the rest of the shoot was this? And this isn't me making fun of of, uh, Val Kilmer's weight. He goes up and down for different roles. But, I mean, he just looked really chunky in that last bit. And it's like, okay, well, when was this shot? Around the time of Alexander, maybe. Yeah, right. And he had the beard and everything. The ending is strange on many in many respects. I agree. It doesn't. I don't think it quite quite works. And I thought that too. I agree, Mike. That whole thing about why is it Perry that slaps around? I mean, the dad does that. The dad deserves to be slapped around. But the question of who's doing the slapping is an interesting one. Well, is it, is it was it because Downey Jr.'s character was too light to do it? Michelle Monaghan was too frothy. Bring in the tough guy. I mean, he is the tough guy of the film. Um, 
can I? It's can there. I just, sorry, it's there. It's there in the scene where the I, I think I think it was there to give him a you know a underline that uh, the whole conversation that that Black has throughout his films, but also very much in this movie about masculinity and screen masculinity. And casting, you know, uh, the tough guy as, you know, a gay character and the, the, the father, the abuser, you know, who should have been the protector, but he was the abuser. And now he's uh, invalid, basically, and, and getting slapped around and he yells at him, oh, big tough guy. And, and, you know, Perry fucking yells at him and he's like, yeah, big tough guy. And, you know, and uh, I thought that was just about... Uh, putting a sort of exclamation point on all the, uh, uh, the machismo, um, that, uh, Shane Black plays with so much. Very pre me too. That scene. going back to, um, Gay Perry and Harry's relationship. I just want to name check. Am I the only one of the three who is a fan of a 1991 film called the hard way with James Woods and Rob and, um, Michael J. Fox. No, the John Badham movie. I love that yeah. movie. When Fox is a sort of wannabe, he's an action action star and he wants to basically play, learn how to play a real cop, so he manages to get sent out to L.A. or he's in L.A., I think, gets, gets sent and he's assigned to this really tough cop, John Moss, and follows him around and Moss is on the trail of this serial killer called the uh, the Party Crasher. And the, Stephen, and, uh, yeah, uh, Stephen Lang. And, of course, Woods. Yeah. At Woods, it's it's misanthropic Woods at his best. He hates fucking what a what a what a lightweight um, Nick Lang, Michael J. Fox's character is. He doesn't want any part of this. And they have this whole. It's a very similar sort of dynamic to the Gay Perry and Harry, the um, the Michael J. Fox James James Woods dynamic. The sort of um, it really 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 reminded me of, of of the Hard Way, which I think has also got a terrific script. Oh yeah, well that was uh, I think Lem Dobbs co-wrote that. Oh wow! Yeah, and it's actually and it's a New York City cop. That's right. No, that's Michael J. Fox is in L.A. and he flies out to to be with a tough New York City cop. And there's so many good good lines in it. I mean, it really reminded me of Gay Perry and Harry. And of course, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang seems like a very New York L.A. movie too, uh, except we're reversing yes. it. And, uh, yes, it's yes. New York actor in L.A. and uh, it makes me wonder it the you know of course because Downey's character is narrating we kind of feel like the whole thing is is coming from his point of view and so we're like yeah we're as an audience we're uh in LA the strange place when we're we're actually identifying as New York but uh but I, I'm curious because you know lethal weapon is such an LA movie nice guys is an LA movie the uh you know they I mean, Long Kiss Goodnight is Baltimore, and uh, uh, Val Kilmer's got the Baltimore line in uh, <laughs> in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I've been to Baltimore. You went. Uh, but, yeah, I think of him as an L.A. writer, um, but he seems to be identifying as the writer and as the, you know, he seems to be identifying as a New York guy and what a weird place L.A. is in the, in the movie. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Some of those lines, they feel like stuff that he has probably said at parties. I mean, it's literally like someone took America by the East Coast and shook it, and all the normal girls managed to hang on. Okay, 
hates Harry here, raise their hand. See that? Obedient little bitches, too. There are those weird moments of surreality in here that just don't really fit with anything, but it makes me love it even more. And we were talking about Tarantino before. Before I forget, I wanted to say that the whole Mr. Frying Pan and Mr. Fire thing, the salt and pepper team, just feel like they fell right out of a Tarantino movie. And I do love that when uh, Dash Myhawk says, Well, now, here we all are. Ike... Mike and Mustard. What the hell does that mean? You know, I'm with him on this one, man. That's pretty fucking obscure. Horseshit. I hear that all the time. You do? Yeah, sure. Where, at the 1942 club? Hey, just because you didn't get in. Motherfucker, I could have got in. Hey, slow your roll, man. What are you going to do, take me out here? The security... Ow! Both Tarantino and uh, Shane Black. Yeah, I I mean, if I could have anybody making buddy cop movies now, uh, you know, it wouldn't be John Batham anymore. It wouldn't be Peter Hyams or... It wouldn't be Walter Hill, but I feel like Walter Hill is really his stamp is all over Shane Black's uh, scripts. And, um, you know, if anybody, maybe more than any of the pulp novelists, I I wonder if Walter Hill is maybe one of his biggest influences. I was afraid maybe you're going to say that if you want to see more buddy cop movies, you'd have Tarantino write them. But I think they would just drive around L.A. aimlessly and listen to the radio and nothing would happen. That was the best part of that film, Mark. I'm sorry. Are we going to go? Are we going to have now the fifteen-minute discussion about Tarantino? No, we don't need to have that again. The Shane Black formula. The other thing he does really well is talky heavies. That's I love that dash. Is it Dash Meehock and Rockman Dunbar? These sort of clever, sarcastic. Well, they're probably not that clever actually, but they sort of you know they're fast on their witty and fast on their feet in terms of a good comeback. I love that, and Black does that so well. It also reminds me of. Those heavies in the last Boy Scout, Milo and his gang. I just think that some of the dialogue in that when... See, Jake, here's a man who knows when a situation is untenable. Good word. You like that word? And you do have that envelope, don't you? You better give up, Jimmy. We're dealing with a couple of geniuses here. Oh. All right, man, just leave him the fuck alone. Oh. Leave him alone, sure, whatever you say. <clears throat> Jake attacks his job with a certain exuberance. Shit. We're being beat up by the inventor of Scrabble. Still in a good mood, Jake. Kick him again. No, 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 no. All right. When he's got, is it Bruce Willis has got the gun and the glove in the in the puppet and he's doing that sort of comedy routine where not when I just think that I just love the way that Black does talky heavies. I think they're really funny. I cannot say enough good things about The Last Boy Scout. I love that movie. And I came I came so late to that movie, and when I saw it, I was just like, where were you all my life? I just love that. To go back to Die Hard, that's a better Die Hard 3 than Die Hard 3 was for me, because it just has that same formula. You know, it's got that, uh, I think it's even set at Christmas time, which the first two diehards were and then the third one they break and they go summer and they go to new york and it's like no 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 you you gotta stay out in la now you you <laughs> you really need to do that you need to do it christmas you need to have john mcclain with a you know witty black guy yeah i i'm okay just keep sam jackson in the long kiss goodnight give me uh damon wayans over here and i'll take this please but yeah i just oh it is such a great movie and yeah taylor negron oh my god him and just the way that he insisted on calling uh joe joseph 
everything about that movie just sings for me. And then especially that last scene when they are riffing and coming up with the one-liners that you would say uh, in certain situations. Now, this being the 90s, you can't just walk up to a guy and smack him in the face. You got to say something cool first, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, uh, I'll be back. Yeah, only better than that. Like, if you hit him with a surfboard, you would say, Surf's up, pal. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so what else? Well, there's not much more to tell than that. Water's wet, the sky's blue. An old Satan clothes, Jimmy, he's out there. And he's just getting stronger. So what do we do about that? Be prepared, son. That's my motto. Be prepared. A lot of that feels like those two characters just kept walking and just walked right into Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I, I agree with you, Mark. I think I think it's the most misanthropic of them, but it's also the funny. It's also the the funniest. The script the script for um, the Last Boy Scout is just it's got so much in it. My last Boy Scout story is that uh, I was I was sixteen when it came out. Uh, when I saw it, I got grounded for a month for going to see the last boy scout uh i was i was not allowed to go see certainly not allowed to go see r-rated movies but i was not allowed to see stuff without getting the clearance and i went and saw the last boy scout got grounded for a month i thought you were going to say something i thought you were going to say something like you ended up cast party or something exciting like that but okay No, no 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 That's no grounded for a month, and I just sat in my room thinking about what a great movie it was, and it was totally worth it. <laughs> just like now, sitting in my room, quarantined. That's okay. I'm thinking about how great Last Boy Scout was, and all these. There things. are a handful of films. Um, the Omega Man is one of them, and The Last Boy Scout is another that I can just watch endlessly. There's a handful of films I call them my coming home drunk films, and I will just. I will put them on and just sit on the couch while I sober up, you know, never get bored with them. I had one question. We talked about how Michelle Monaghan is kind of missing from the end of this film. There's that moment where we see, because we've seen the Gennaro beer commercial one time. We've had references to it a few times. And then we see the Gennaro beer commercial one last time in the movie, but it's a different girl. And I'm, my interpretation and please give me yours guys is there's always going to be, it's kind of like that line from LA confidential, you know, there's a hundred guys to come and take your place, but they might not come on the bus. And for me, it's almost like this is the next girl who's in this commercial and what's her story going to be. But I don't know. I don't necessarily know what to make of this new woman that's in this commercial. No, I'd buy that for a dollar. That sounds good to me. Yeah, I basically took it as as yeah, they're all replaceable and uh, but uh, uh, yeah, that, I I didn't put much thought into that. Is that a real beer or is that a made up beer? I think it's a made up beer. That's why I'm wondering: was it changed to Gennaro's because she was already in the running for uh, the role of Holly Gen- or of uh, of Angie Gennaro in the Gone Baby Gone, or or not? Or was it just a play on generic? I mean, we had stupid beer commercials in the States, believe you me. The, the talking frogs were probably some of the worst ones, but so having a beer, having a bear there saying, what do I know? I suck the heads off fish. It's not too much of a stretch. You know, one time I shared a meal with one of the Spuds McKenzie girls and yes, yes. How long, how, 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 how you, 25 years later, it was weird. <laughs> how long were you grounded for for that? <laughs> I should have been grounded. I, I was having, yeah, I was having a weird, a weird delayed puberty there. 
Did you guys get a chance to read the actual Brett Halliday book that some of this is based on? I did today. So I didn't, I, I just kind of, I mean, they're very light. I skimmed through it pretty quick, uh, just kind of looking for what was capped and what was, uh, what was gone. I was really impressed with it. I really enjoyed that book. Why, why are you so shocked about that? I, well, first I was impressed that it was so similar in a lot of ways that a lot of those beats, I mean, cause it's, it's what Harry keeps saying, you know, there's two cases and the two cases come together and our case, they're, they're the same thing. Again, it's that kind of LA confidential thing of like, you know, I think your case and my case are the same case. And it's very much like that other case. It's the case that Perry's working on that eventually runs into the Allison Ames case is the case that Mike Shane is working on through this. As far as why I was so impressed, it's just that I read that when we were talking about doing this back in December. I don't necessarily retain that much that easily because I'm always reading. And I can remember so many clear passage of the passages of that, like so many months later, it just really hit me with how good the prose was. And I had been completely unfamiliar with Brett Halliday, aka what was his real name? It was uh David's, David Davis Dresser, Dresser, sorry. David Dresser. David Dresser. I was unfamiliar with his uh, fiction uh, completely, so I was just like, well, great, now I have a new author to read. I read a and, couple of the Mike Shane books uh, just this week. The other movie uh, I had seen was, was one um, called uh, Dress to Kill uh, from, I think, 1941 uh, that uh, he had written um, – as an, an adaptation of uh, somebody else's novel, I guess. It seemed more similar to me to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and the Shane Black sort of uh, rhythm than reading the novels did. And I, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I'd have to I'd have to watch it again. I've, it's been a couple of years since I'd seen that movie. But um, yeah, I was like, oh yeah, I can definitely feel Shane Black picking up on this this kind of rhythm, this sort of uh, banter and and and. You know, almost more like screwball comedy than uh, than uh, detective uh, noir uh, of the mid-century. I guess the other reason, too, why I was so surprised was just that he was able to take so many of these plot points from this 1941 novel and work them into a 2005 story so easily that they were able to be translated like that. Because that whole core story of the rich man who has the fake daughter in order to get what was it the wife's inheritance or something and i think isn't is it the wife that's locked up in the booby hatch or that she's like kind of out of commission through a lot of it and just like all of those little beats and stuff and that it's mike shane but then there's also this reporter character and the reporter is kind of like the Harry Lockhart character, which is interesting that Mike Shane is basically the gay Perry character and he's front and center. And it's like you were to take the side character and flip it and make him the main character. And that's what I thought was so interesting too, is the way that he was able to take those tropes and flip them around so that it's basically the sidekick, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh big trouble in little China, right? Where it's like really the sidekick is the guy who's actually getting things done. And the main guy is, you know, just kind of hanging around. And Harry is very much like he lucks into things where it's, you know, gay Perry, who's the one who's actually very grounded and doing, real detective work yeah they kept the uh what the underwear thing and the uh 
and the bodies, you know, in the two, the two, um, Mike Shane books I read, they both have just bodies showing up, uh, you know, planted in Mike Shane's, um, hotel room or, uh, you know, it, I don't remember him peeing on either no, one. I don't think he pees but, on. <laughs> uh, but it was like, oh, this must happen in like every Mike Shane uh, story is, oh, a body shows up. Somebody thinks, you know what? The other 20 times somebody tried to pin a murder on Mike Shane, it didn't go so well. But this time it's going to work great. And And that's the other thing is Mike Shane is known by everybody like everywhere he goes people are like oh i've seen him in the paper it's that tough detective uh everybody knows mike shane but that's not in kiss kiss it's that mid-century detective fiction i mean these guys were good at what i mean they were and they were not always but these these long formula series they were good at what they did they they wrote crime fiction like they put together really well-crafted bits of furniture it all it all all the joins work it's a good solid product and i mean they're all just riffing off tropes aren't they that are just got they're just spinning around constantly and being recycled i mean i'm thinking of the australian equivalent of um mike shane was a was a was a writer called alan yates who had this who wrote 380 novels a large number of which appeared in the u.s under the pseudonym carter brown and they were exactly the same type of novels as these sort of um Brett Halliday uh, novels only, and, and um, you know they just and I mean again I mean Carter Brown would have this would have had a, had, a, had a character called Al Wheeler and Al Wheeler was constantly people were dumping bodies on him, he was being called to large manors where he was being briefed on the assignment assi- assignment by some wheelchair bound mogul, and it, go, it would go into all I mean it's just it's just all ripping around you know. Shane Black's just taking great chunks of ripping great chunks of that off and chucking that in the script in a very free flowing type of way. Well, it's one of those times where you are remixing something and coming up with something that is so fresh and so original and feels so new, even though it's based on something else and based on something from, you know, half a century before, but he can give it that fresh coat of paint and really make it his own it's it doesn't feel like it's a ripoff or a riff on something it just feels like it is you know here's this core idea that i'm going to take and flip it around and make it my own so he probably didn't really even need to give credit because he had made it so different than the original but i was glad that he did give credit obviously because there are enough similarities but and also it brought brought me to Brett Halliday where I'm just like, Oh, okay. And then it also made me realize like you were saying, uh, Jed, that, you know, he wrote movies and that there were other things that were based on this stuff that Mike Shane was played by Hugh Beaumont in five different movies. It's like, I never knew that. I never would have pictured Hugh Beaumont as a hard boiled detective, but okay, great. So now it's like trying to track down. I I have found many versions of Murder is My Business, the first Mike Shane movie from 46. I have yet to find a decent copy of it. Every single time I try to find a copy, it's like the audio is just completely fucked. But eventually I will find one and I will be able to watch my first Mike Shane movie. Black credited, I think, the the Mike Shane stuff too, because it's cool, mid-century cool. I mean, and it's. I, I read somewhere that um, he also got probably America's um, 
most famous uh, paperback cover illustrator who's still alive, um, Robert McGuinness. McGuinness, he commissioned McGuinness, or the, the, the film commissioned McGuinness to do six covers. For the, and they're the covers that you see Harmony reading in the various parts of the film. Oh, and those are beautiful. I love when she's looking at those. That's because they're incredibly cool, mid-century styled, um, and all this stuff had a certain theme and formula to it. Pop covers, they're, and they're beautiful. And can I just say what a beautiful name Johnny Gossamer is? Gossamer, of course, is like a, a very fine spider web, which aptly describes the plot of Kiss, Kiss Bang Bang. It is crisscrossing. It is dense. It is you are totally forgiven for not following the whole thing, you know, at least on, on first viewing. It's it's Byzantine. I, I looked it up. I was like, surely that, that means something. And uh, the, the second definition I saw was something light, thin, insubstantial. And I thought, well, that's just beautiful. That's because uh, that's what the, the movie feels like. It is both the spider web of uh, a plot and it's it's light, thin, insubstantial, delicate, but it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Uh, I love it. And so, yeah, I just that's another level of uh, a layer you didn't need to know was there uh, to appreciate the film. But, uh, you know, the, the deeper you dig on all the details, all those choices, there's a good reason for it. And it's it's delightful to discover it. Do you think that that spider was the same one that was on Michelle Monaghan's boob? <laughs> I mean, Jeb was trying to make a really lovely writerly point then, Mike, and you've just totally made it about smut. A biggie. <laughs> on that note, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with writer-director Shane Black, and we'll be right back with that right after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com 
slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime-slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series, Tales from the Crypt. Here's what the rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. (laughs) Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I am very curious how somebody who's working, what, at a temp agency and ushering at a theater ends up becoming the huge screenwriter in the world with Lethal Weapon. Well, there's two factors involved, which is that things come to fruition when they do, and they usually have their roots looking back in a lot of things that at the time didn't seem like a big deal, but we're actually just moving towards that culmination. One was that I read books and I was a complete freak, loser, OCD shy kid who found refuge in just a billion books. I would just, at school, I would go off while everyone's having fun, I'd sit under a tree and read, and I called me Bomar, which at the time was a type of calculator. I was a Bomar in high school by the, you know, the vernacular books. How many screenwriters do you talk to? How many big writers even who would say, yeah, I read it from time to time. It's like, I don't understand that. You just read, you read and read and read. Secondly, there was a group called the Pado guys, which consisted of, of my friends at UCLA. One was Fred Decker, who I work with. Another was Jim Hertzfeld who wrote Meet the Parents. Uh, David Fincher, at one point, was hanging out with our group. David Arnott was an actor. David Silverman was an animation director who ends up working on The Simpsons, uh, directing that movie. Ed Solomon was part of the group, who went on to write Men in Black and many other wonderful scripts. That one class at UCLA had this most eclectic, but you know, powerfully you know, ambitious and, and smart group. And we all lived in the same fucking house. From time to time, you know, we'd sort of go in and out. People would leave or come back. But it was this house on Parnell Avenue in Los Angeles, which we called the Patter Guys. And this place was where we all gathered. There was a sign in the window that said, open 24 hours. And if you drove by and the sign was lit, it could be five in the morning, you go in. And someone's making a video. Someone's having an argument about some movie like The Sentinel with Christina Raines, you know. There's always something there that's about these film nerds who knew each other before they were famous or successful, who just loved film, found in each other a sort of refuge and a sort of like-minded group that made made it feel less lonely. Because there's nothing more lonely than writing by yourself in an attic, thinking that, you know, the best they can hope for is that mom may read this. Because until you sell, you don't know that, that anyone else will read it. 
but with that group around me and surrounded by that degree of support that we would help each other up the ladder as each of us succeeded in turn we'd reach back and sort of pull someone else up a rung in that way we helped each other and i believe that my immersion in mystery suspense science fiction all those things over the years uh, peppered with the knowledge of the classics and i couldn't wait to start writing and it was just waiting for a group to support me to do that so what's it like for you when you get to actually work with some of the writers that you're reading? Because I imagine you were reading people like Warren Murphy. Warren Murphy worked with me on Lethal Weapon 2, for instance, was someone I had idolized. I, the chance to even meet the guy or share a dinner with him would have been enough. But then the idea that he was looking to me saying, what do you want to do, boss? Here we go. Let's write. Yeah, pretty wild. The first time someone sent me a Stephen King script, because Stephen King kept me sane through high school. I was, a, like I said, kind of a screwy kid, and I would just read Stephen King. And they said, we don't like the script he's written that much. You want to fix it? I said, what the, are you crazy? Are you, absolute, are you just fucking with me? You want me to rewrite Stephen King? I mean, these kinds of experiences, yeah, they're very surreal. What was your relationship, or what is your relationship with Joel Silver, and when did you first meet him? I met Joel Silver back in the day when... I had just written the script for the Lethal Weapon movie that I'd done the first draft. And Joel, at that point, he had been working heavily with uh, Larry Gordon and Walter Hill. They had done 48 Hours. So they said, well, 48 Hours, that's, you know, maybe that's the kind of guy who would want to do something like Lethal Weapon. So I met Joel on the basis of let's do this script. He was a strange, obsessive, energized, and, and driven young producer he tickled me, man. I just thought he was an odd guy, but he was fun. He wasn't married yet. He was still kind of a, he's mellowed a bit. I think back then he was even more energized than he currently is. And I would sit and write Lethal Weapon, rewrite it next to him in the office about 10 feet away. And then he'd walk over and say, hey, Joel, read these pages. And he'd say, yeah, it looks good to me. Fix this. It was the most natural-seeming sort of uh, partnership. I didn't realize until later that it was more difficult than that. I didn't realize until later that rewrites took a long time. My rewrite of Lethal Weapon took seven days sitting in Joel's office showing him the pages. And he even said, look, don't uh, just, just hang on to it. I said, what? He says, don't turn it in. Hang on to it for another month. Because if you turn it in now, they'll think it's bad. But I see, he says it's good, but turn it in in a month so they'll think you worked on it. And then Joel and I's deep, our relationship kind of deepened, and through the years, I found that his love of the things that in the suspense genre, particularly the tropes of noir and the tropes of '70s movies like The French Connection and Bullet, and, and to some extent, Forty Eight Hours in the '80s, he was kind of working within and recreating the genre that I loved. People have credited Lethal Weapon with having said put a boost in the cop genre. No, it was Forty Eight Hours. Forty Eight Hours came first. Walter Hill was much more the guy who sort of reinvigorated that genre. Lethal Weapon, with anything, was just a, a follow-up to what I, the movies I loved, like Dirty Harry, Bullet, 48 Hours, you know, The Seven Ups, The French Connection. Tell me about The Last Boy Scout and where that came from, because that, to me, is still just such a fantastic movie, and that I can't believe that the script I consider to be even better than the final film. That was a fun script to write. I went off to a, a cabin in Big Bear. The Last Boy Scout was was an attempt on my part to just get out of a funk. I was in a pretty bad depression uh, over a breakup. 
I couldn't seem to find any way to get square to clear my head or get out of this bad neighborhood that my brain had become, especially after dark. It was a very bad neighborhood after dark. I couldn't stop thinking negative thoughts. So and oddly, the one thing that I, I, I couldn't find a thing to distract me, I would try to read and I couldn't read. Just as an aside, I picked up a book by an author named Robert McCammon called Mystery Walk. And I started reading it and for the, it was, I got engaged in it and I liked the book. And I, I remember thinking, holy shit, I'm almost not feeling bad now. And I read some more. Of it. I actually am enjoying this book and nothing could pull me out of it, but a piece of fiction did. So that was step one. Step two, I said, all right, time to get back to work. I hate myself. I don't know how to write. I feel that every line I've written is the last one. That's the last funny line I'm ever going to write. But I still loved detectives. And I thought, I'm just going to try this. I had this notion about a detective who was once considered some kind of icon, looked upon as a patriot, a man of distinction who was since abandoned that sort of mythic status, even though he has the president on speed dial, he's really just a scumbag now who can only look to the past and the sort of vague memory of his achievements or his Boy Scout status. Team him up with a football player who was once an icon, was busted for drugs and lives essentially in a disgraced state also, and take the fallen angels and make them into something. And, and that was sort of the genesis of it. And I went away to a cabin and, and typed and typed. The worst part when you're writing is when you think that it might work. Because for a while you're writing thinking, I hate myself, I can't do this. And then you're thinking, well, this is an interesting problem. And and you start to replace fear with problem solving. Something momentarily distracts you is in that moment vaguely more interesting than your own fear. And so then you follow that and it becomes writing. Yeah, then I start halfway through that. Oh, the shit, this could work. God damn it. What if I fuck it up? And I kept going. And I actually felt good for the first time I finished the script. I thought, I, that, I, that, I liked that. And boy, I was really depressed and how great it was that I could do this and fight my way out of what I thought was a absolutely crippling, irre- irretrievable depression. And then they made the movie and it was okay. You know, they, they wanted a big action ending with a stadium and a helicopter. I gave them that. If you'd ask me, what I think of the script, I'm more likely to say I like the first half when it's still wide open and still full of ideas and stuff. And and it's, there's an iconic scene, which I like, which is when Joe Hallenbeck, the protagonist, is sitting in a chair and he says, if you hit me again, I'll kill you. I always like that scene. I'm awake. You nearly broke my wrist, man. Man, I wanted us to watch out for this guy. Now, fuck that. Fuck you, fuck that. Look at him, he's nothing, guys. Piece of shit. You got a cigarette? Cigarette? Yeah, sure. Yeah, cigarette. You got a light? Yeah, you got a light. <laughs> <laughs> hey, baby. I thought you were tough. See, Pamela, he's not so bad. <laughs> Seem to have dropped my cigarette. I have another. Sure. Sure thing, buddy.
you the light. If you touch me again, I'll kill you. Taylor Negron, he was a great guy. The problem we had, oddly, was that I didn't write the character as gay. I wrote him as very sort of oily and smooth and slick, and he used a lot of big words. For some reason, when they made the movie, they thought, well, obviously that's gay. And so they cast a very effeminate man to play it in a very effeminate way. And then we had protests. We came out about the same, around the same era as uh, Basic Instincts, which also had protests, because they said, oh, so gay characters can only play villains? Is that it? Sure enough, on set, people would show up honking horns and stuff, because the press had, and even David Geffen, who championed the movie, distanced himself from it, and said, you know, somehow that this movie was bad for the gay community. I never intended that. It was weird. I was reading up about you, and I, I read something about you having some ex- negative experience with maybe the Writers Guild or something after Long Kiss Goodnight. No, that was I don't like to harp on that because it's a it's a victim sounding story. But um, I had made a lot of money at that point writing these you know suspense or action scripts, and my friend Dale Lawner had called to say, "Hey, I'll, let me sponsor you into the Academy of Motion Pictures, not the Writers Guild, but the Academy." You know, all it takes to get in is, I think you have to have two produced works of some kind of substantive merit. And I had like four or five things at that time, one or two of which were hits. And and they turned me down. They said, thank you. You're welcome, welcome to reapply at a future date when you have more credits. And it was obvious that they just, you know, didn't want me. That's okay. Then it became a news story, which it shouldn't have been. Yeah, I was I was not heartbroken. There was a long period between Long Kiss Goodnight and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Were you doing like script polishing during that time? I may have helped out on a couple things. I don't remember specifically. I remember I got very depressed again, um, such as my nature, unfortunately. You know, after all this sort of negativity surrounding the the size of the payments that I'd been given, you know, the, the sums to which of these scripts had sold for became sort of instead of just what I got paid, it was viewed as how dare he take that kind of money for this kind of crap movie. <laughs> and you know, there was some negativity. And uh, even Peter Bart, when I sold Long Kiss Goodnight, wrote an editorial basically saying that I was a hack who made too much money. I think I got depressed over that stuff. I, what I did then was I just started hanging out with friends, driving around. I think that was also the beginning of uh, drinking too much, crossing a line where before I had just sort of been a casual drinker. And as it approached the millennium, I think I, without even knowing it, I was drinking a lot more than I used to. That was part of why I didn't work too. I was depressed. I was drinking. 
And I was driving around like the guys in that movie Swingers, just sort of going to Hollywood events and acting like whatever, <laughs> riding on the previous success and not really doing anything much to ensure that next chapter. Well, how do you come to that next chapter? Do you write yourself out of it or how do you manage to pull yourself up by the bootstraps? Once again, I can't tell you how, except sort of providentially. Part of the joy of writing has always been for me. When I wrote, I didn't drink. I didn't go out. I didn't do anything except write. And so I knew it was time to do something that felt a little bit noble. And as my mentor, Jim Brooks, once said, you know, if you're going to be tortured over something, why not be tortured over something noble like writing? I thought that sounded pretty smart. You know, so don't be tortured about relationships or drinking your problems away. You want to you want to really feel bad? Try writing <laughs> or take up golf. I sat down and wrote my way out of it. Like you say, I started typing a script and I met Jim Brooks and showed him some pages. And he said, hey, I like what you're trying here. Why don't you try this some more of this? So now encouraged, I sort of took up residence in his office at the Sony lot. He was kind enough just to give me a space in which to write. And it was so tough. I was trying to be him. I was trying to write a Hollywood movie about like like a Capra-esque thing about kids in the big city. I wanted to do this sort of romantic L.A. piece about an actor. And it was all over the map. And at first he was very enthusiastic, but when I showed it to him, like 80 pages he said dude i don't know man i I don't know where you're going with this it's it's just weird it's kind of and i was crushed of course he was my mentor at the time i was trying to write my way out of my depression again and so this is where it's got interesting because i could have been crushed and used that to just back off but some niggling little part of me a survival mechanism if you will said okay he hates it but there's good scenes in there god damn it What if there was a murder as well? What if you added a detective and a murder? And I thought, well, ah, that I can get behind. And so I think it's my best script. And I think it is because it started out without a width or breadth of crime. And I was forced to really just try to write a relationship piece. It wasn't the greatest and it was structurally flawed. But when I added the structure of a murder mystery to it, now I can write it. And so... It's sort of this weird amalgam between my first attempt to try to read Jim Brooks, which was a failed attempt at a relationship comedy, followed by me turning it into a murder mystery. Well, you've got a couple relationships in there. You've got the relationship of Harry and Harmony and then Harry and Perry. I love the back and forth between all of those characters. The first draft was just Harry and Harmony. When I did the murder mystery version, I added the gay detective character, and that's when it lit up. And and other themes began to emerge, like the idea of, you know, myths and knighthood and living up to iconic expectations and fooling people into thinking you're filling shoes that you can't possibly fill. And, and then making the character a magician who was trying. And then by the end of the movie, in my view, Harry performs one magic trick which is for five seconds, he channels the actual detective he's pretended to be and becomes that guy for five seconds. And it's magic. It just happens to him. And the, even the guy says that Corbin Burtson, Captain fucking magic. And it's true. His girlfriend, who's, you know, long ago, he saw it in half, says, Harry, do a magic trick for me. She's half unconscious when she says it. 
And he says, fuck it. And that gets him to stand up and do a little last little trick where for a minute he becomes a detective that he's always read about and decides to finish this. When did you first start reading the Brett Halliday books? I read the first Brett Halliday book called Die Like a Dog when I was nine years old. Got it from the local public library in Freehold, New Jersey. And over the years, I read many, many, probably read all of the ones that Halliday himself wrote. Then he turned over to some ghostwriters. There's such a nice mix of him and then Chandler in there as well. It just all seems to come together. Well, that's the trick, isn't it? it? It's all chaos until it comes together. I knew I had a love of Chandler. I loved the Mike Shane, Brett Halliday books. I wanted to do a Jim Brooks relationship movie. I loved those. There were so many elements swirling. When it clicks, it tends to click all at once. And, and the mind is doing this work behind the scenes, I believe. I think the subconscious, over two years of trying to write this, was while I was sleeping, it was sifting all these things and saying, how does this become one shape? How does this become one shape? And it's the one that assigned a Chandler chapter to each movement in the story. Uh, it's the one that gave Harry the background as a child magician who then sort of this loser in high school. It added the uh, detective character and the friction between him as this sort of homophobic guy and this partner who was probably, he was a corporate uh, and very powerful man who breaks jaws and just happens to be gay. All those elements swirled and came together in the subconscious and then assembled over the course of two years. Is there much of you in Harry? I don't think any one character in a, in a given script represents me or the author. I think what happens is, say, if you write a script about a curmudgeonly old guy who's arguing with this sort of idealistic young hotshot, well, obviously, that's a conversation that you're having in your own mind. Between the party that's pragmatic and wants to, you know, be realistic and give up, and the part that's hanging on to and clinging to that sort of idealistic hope, the, the fight that they're having is a fight that your own brain is having. I think you're both those characters. I think that if you write about a gay character, party who's gay. I think if you write a woman character, then you're accessing your feminine side. I think that there's just everything in us fighting, and writing is the ultimate conversation we get to have between all the different facets of ourselves to which we assign names, and I think we're every character. So how do you go from writing this thing to actually directing your first feature? I wasn't entirely happy with the way some of the the movies I'd written were turning out. There was great things in them, but certain scenes I'd watch and go, Jim, that didn't come off quite the way I'd, I'd envisioned. And that'll just mean that I envisioned a different place where he was standing or this or that. I mean that the impact of it didn't seem to come through that there were more effective ways in my head, and I wanted to try them out. And I was warned. William Goldman said to me, I don't think you should direct. I don't know if you should. I mean, come on. We're all writers, but, you know, it's such a different skill. And John Frankenheimer said to me, I don't think you should direct. And I just said, you know what? Duly noted on all fronts, but what can it hurt? Let's try this. I'm going to read books on it. So I read every book, you know, I just sat and read books about directing, read about all the tricks of, of the technical side. Then I went through films at night, frame by frame. Some of my favorites. What makes this work? There's a three second shot. Oh, wait a minute. That's a, there's a little, you know, 12 frames here of something. And that's why that works. 
And this is three cuts, not two. And that's why this works. And I would just frame by frame these films to see how the cutting worked. And then I went to Joel Silver. And Joel, of only he was the only one in Hollywood who was willing to give Kiss Kiss Bang Bang a real shot. He didn't want to change the script. He didn't want to mess with it. He just said, let's do this. He said, we did, you know, the black detective or the white detective and the black con with 48 hours, crazy guy and sane guy and lethal weapon. He says, this is straight guy, gay guy. He says, I love it. Let's do it. And he championed me to the studio who really didn't care because it was only a $14 million budget and they trusted Joel. And was there any hesitation as far as casting Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr., who are, as far as I know, at this point, they're both seen as kind of volatile personalities? The movie almost got canceled on a, more than one occasion because no one wanted, at that point, the most talented you know, actor arguably working in Robert Downey. And to my thinking, the other most talented actor working in Val Kilmer, because they had both had some damage. Reputation-wise, Val was seen as difficult. Robert was seen as having been in jail and been doing drugs. And But you know what? I met with Robert, and uh, he was clean, and he was insurable. And Val was great. I sat with Val. And this was, they were hungry. They wanted a movie. They wanted to do something. These are two of the most talented people around, and they were being ignored largely because of uh, a lot of innuendo and, you know, bad business in the past, which, you know, I was happy to, at that point too, you don't care. It's like, well, look, these are great talented people. This is a bargain. I'm getting two of the best actors around for whatever crazy reason no one wants right now, because they're citing some kind of, you know, behavior issues or jail time or whatever, but I get these guys. It's not like I have to work with difficult people. I'm getting the bargain that no one else can get. And you know what? I got nothing to lose. This is my first picture as a director. I'm just doing the best I can. I'll take it. And I just lucked into this. You know, I lucked into the two guys that for whatever reason had been marginalized somewhat. And I got that to work with. And it was a joy because they were hungry and behaved impeccably. They were into it. They were into it. Yeah, the, I think that there was a level of commitment on the part of Downey and Kilmer that was insanely beneficial. And when someone's hungry, that's the good time to get them. There are a lot of actors who walk walk through things. Uh, and then there's actors who you're reminded of the time when they must have been reading a script in their apartment, rolling up their sleeves and underlining passages. Even the biggest stars had that moment in their past where they were just actors, first and foremost, studying a script, beating it out using a red pen. And that's what these guys brought to it, the sort of dedication and intensity of actors, pure and simple, almost like they'd gone back to their roots because, you know, arguably they weren't the biggest stars at that point. Here you are, a screenwriter, now turned director slash writer, and you're dealing with, I'm pretty sure that Kilmer can do some great ad-libbing, and I know that Robert Downey Jr. can do some just killer ad-libbing. Do you allow them to get off the leash a little bit? Absolutely. It's amazing how well they knew the scripted lines. And uh, certainly they would they would give us one for the books. They would give us one that was the scripted lines, you know. But then they would also get together and say, well, let's try something. Let's do a bit. And the great news is that when you're with people like that, 
who aren't going back to their trailer, who are just willing to stick and just work on something in a committed way. We could sit down and they would just run things and we would rewrite. We'd rewrite the night before. We'd rewrite the hour before. And it was a, just a very blessed combination to this day. I feel like directing that film as green as I was, was the best experience I've had and produced, I think, the best movie of any of that I've worked on. I have to get really nerdy with you and ask you if the whole idea of uh, Gennaro's, was that a reference back to Die Hard? No, I, I, it may have been subconsciously, but I was just looking for the name of a beer. I also have to ask, because I think this one has a little bit more weight. You make fun of The Hunt for Red October and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. What was your role on The Hunt for Red October? I mean, other than the actual in front of the camera role. Um, I had no role except to be a friend of John McTiernan's on The Hunt for Red October. I just liked John a lot. And so when he said, come out and, you know, hang with us, it's interesting because John sat and he would, on the set, there was this line to be had, sure. But then John sat and talked to me about depression for a while and because and he knew something about me. And so it was really, I think, an act of mercy where he was helping me and also just trying to say, hey, if you want to talk about your depression, I'm here for you. That's remarkable to me. That was that was a great thing he did. It just happened to be that I ended up on the set of that movie. But it wasn't really, that wasn't what was important. It was just about knowing John and really, really liking him. Who have been some of your favorites to work with over the years? Over the years, the finest actor in many ways. I, can't, I don't want to down the actors who I've also worked with by saying this was the finest actor I've ever worked with. But I can't think of anyone better, let's say, than Sam Jackson to work with. He's just a pleasure. and It's all about commitment level to me. It's all about people who, do, yes, they may be movie stars, and they can sort of have boundaries and turn on that sort of distance if they need to. But if they trust you enough to open up, they can just commit 100%. They're actors. They're pure. You know, I was a theater major. I wasn't a film major. And I've always been a believer in that theatrical tradition. And Sam Jackson is just the ultimate actor. I'll give you an example. There was a scene in Long Kiss Goodnight where he's in a car at the end with Gina Davis and he goes through this speech and he's dying or thinks he is. And he coughs up blood and he's crying and he's talking about the little girl. He says, you have your mama's eyes. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So when we're done with the scene and we wanted to uh, just do the shot from across the street in the snow. And we the shot was just the car being snowed on. And inside you saw people moving. And they said, all right, guys, just go through the motions of the scene. Uh, we're just shooting from outside the car. And Sam, I was on the headphones. He went through the whole scene, the crying, the he was inside a car 30 yards away, but he couldn't just go through the scene. He couldn't half-ass it. There's lots of people. I mean, I can't. You know, Michelle Monaghan was a revelation. You know, Gina Davis was brilliant and fun to work with. You know, back in the day, I, I, I can't mention specifics because I, I'm worried about what that would seem to imply about the others that I don't mention because I've loved everyone I've worked with. But my God, I've been privileged. Let's say I've been blessed to have had access to so much talent. If anything, I, I would cite specifically Robert Downey as someone who has been very good to me and whose talent is just stratospheric. He has brought me back from the brink on many occasions, particularly when my alcoholism had spiraled and I needed to get sober. Uh, he took me to a meeting. And then once I got sober, 
he essentially called me for Iron Man 3. I mean, people don't do that. They just don't do that. Yeah, I wanted to say Michelle Monaghan goes toe-to-toe with everybody in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang so well. And just, again, that chemistry that she has with everybody is just fantastic. And she was the only one. We had lots of actresses reading for that role who were a lot better known, to the point where after... 20 auditions, I'd say, geez, I must have written this role wrong. It just sounds like it sounds bad. I I, I screwed it up. I didn't write it correctly because these are really talented actors coming in and then it's just not sounding right. And then she came in and she was a virtual unknown. had only done a few things. And when she read it, I went, I'm brilliant. What was I thinking? Of course this works. And look at these lines and look at her. And she just brought it to life. It was the perfect melding of an actor and a a character that they'd apparently been born to play. I did want to ask you about Iron Man 3, and what was your experience like working with the the whole Marvel thing and stepping into a franchise like that? Stepping into a Marvel franchise is uh, it, it was daunting, but it's one of those things where I, I, I had another big bit of luck, and I think I've had a lot of it. And that's that this guy had been rolled over from another Marvel movie called The Runaways, which at that time was a movie that they canceled. And they threw this writer at me and said, work with this guy. And I said, are you kidding me? I don't need another hand at this. I was being arrogant. And they said, well, just give him a shot. And that was Drew Pierce, this Scottish writer. And, it, you know, for the first hour, it's like, well, I guess I'm working with you. Yep, guess so. And then, boom, it was just now, to this day, if I have a problem, I call Drew He's astonishing. He's like the the new go-to, obviously, for the big picture right now, the big action picture like Mission Impossible. But beyond that, he can do anything. And just been so goddamn lucky who I've been blessed to work with. Kevin Feige at Marvel, I was still way too persnickety and arrogant uh, about script issues. And we'd bump heads from time to time. But it ended up being a good thing because in collaborative terms, what came out of that was him restricting my excesses and me maybe pushing the envelope slightly on what would otherwise have been a more standard Marvel movie. I love the outcome. I like that movie a lot. And Kevin's brilliant. That's what's great about Marvel. They live this stuff. All the people there, they read comic books when they were kids. They don't want to do anything else. They don't want to take vacations. They want to make more movies about comic book heroes. So when you see the interviews with the executives at other studios talking about Batman or this or that, you realize this is an executive who's probably never read a comic book. And then you see Kevin Feige and he's a nerd who's read every comic book. So he's, you know, it's the difference between the creative force being actual talented, passionate nerds who happen also to be brilliant producers. So that was the, you know, I'll work with those guys, but you know, if they would ever have me back, but my God. And when I would get uh persnickety, Joss Whedon would say to me, dude, trust the machine. I said, what? He said, there's a machine here. Yes. But these guys know this stuff backwards and forwards. There are certain boundaries they can't go beyond others. They will, but it's a, it's a pretty efficient machine and maybe you should trust it to some extent. And I said, you know what? I will do that. And the minute I started being really, really trusting of the genius that I think resides within people like Kevin Feige and Stephen Broussard and Lou Esposito and Victoria Alonso, that's when the best part of the collaboration was able to flourish. 
have to say, I love what you did with the whole Mandarin character and making that switcheroo. That was just probably one of my favorite moments of that movie. Yeah, people like it or they don't like it. They either think it's, you know, an interesting and somewhat precognizant view of, you know, manufactured fear mongering, or they see it as a betrayal of the most, you know, reverentially uh, held comic book villain in the Iron Man franchise. I, I, we weren't trying to betray anything. We were given a mandate to alter the Mandarin and make it more palatable. And in this case, I like what we did. I'm proud of it. And it made a lot of money. And, you know, haters are haters. Well, it would have been really tone deaf in 2013 to have this evil Asian character. I mean, you just, I, I don't want to say just, but you had gone through this thing where Taylor Negron was playing a slightly effeminate uh, bad guy. What are you going to get when you, <laughs> when you, you have this evil Asian character, even if he's being played by Ben Kingsley? Yeah, the idea was that he would steal from the iconography of dragons and he would, uh, Sun Tzu, you know, would be one element that he would include in his, in this sort of profile that had been manufactured by this think tank. They'd say, let's draw from that. Let's draw from Mideast terrorism and give him khaki pants. Let's draw from these different cadences used by dictators and we'll assign him a way of speaking. And it, the idea of a manufactured threat that ticks all the boxes of things took the curse off what would otherwise have been a stereotypically dull choice. Did I read right that The Nice Guys was originally supposed to be a TV show? Uh, yeah, we pitched it as a TV show to HBO and to CBS, and both of them turned us down. That script had been sitting around since 2002 when it was finally reactivated in, I guess it was 2013. So things like that happened. That was interesting. This lark, my partner and I, Anthony, when I was doing Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, we were also trying to write a detective movie, the two of us. And I took the March character and he took the Healy character, essentially. And we just tried something in tandem, which almost never works, by the way, because I knew him so well. I guess that we were able finally to sort of switch off and it became sort of indeterminate as to who had written what. I can't even remember at this point. Well, I am curious about some of those projects that you've worked on over the years that maybe still have legs and maybe don't. Because, I mean, I've been reading about you doing a Doc Savage movie for a long time. Is there still any chance that that's going to happen? Doc Savage is, as far as I'm, I can see right now, pretty much dead in the water. And for the reason that I... I I have a very strong allegiance to it. It's something that has roots in my childhood. You know, I was one of the first books I ever read was a Doc Savage book. It's set in the 1930s. It embodies and, and exemplifies the sort of pulp that I came to love. So that's what it is. It's the 1930s. It's pre-World War II. You could probably do a World War II version of it at best, but it's a period piece. And that's what the studio wouldn't pay for. They just said, if you want to try, we'll give it a shot if you want to try it in 2020. We're setting it, you know, would, and I said, I don't want to see Doc Savage fight El, you know, Al Qaeda or the Taliban. I just don't want to see that. Doc Savage in the world of computers, the 30s was a particularly remarkable time because it was an unexplored world where the sort of Indiana Jones type explorers still held weight. There could still be, for instance, a Yeti because we hadn't mapped the Himalayas. There's no place on Earth now that isn't targeted by satellite or GPS. There's just not that sense of mystery. And and I also just 
you know, in my head, I can write a certain thing that is is a passion to me. I can't write something that isn't, and I couldn't adjust the Doc Savage script for current day. So I said no, and they said no, and then that's that. We mentioned uh, Warren Murphy earlier, and I also read that you might do a Rima Williams movie. Is there any weight to, to that? Another movie, I think, that's currently just on hold. I'm not attached at this current moment to direct that, although I did a couple of drafts of the script with Fred Decker and Jim Mullaney. Jim Mullaney is the guy who wrote some of the best Destroyer books. So there's scripts out there, but they're just not going anywhere. I have to do something new uh, if I'm going to stay viable, if I am still viable. I have to do something new and original. I think that's what it comes down to. I got to get off my horse again. Off my horse. Got to get off my high horse and on my hobby horse. Yeah, I got to ride to the corral or something. Well, what are you working on these days? These days, I have taken a break and I'm I'm doing a lot of spending a lot of time trying to devote myself to a more spiritual lifestyle. As corny as that might sound, uh, doing a lot of thinking. I'm working with some alcoholics. You know, I stay sober by helping other alcoholics, and that's pretty much the way that goes. And so I've tried to just live life for now. In the back of my head, like I said, the subconscious will always do the work that I don't. It will, while I'm sleeping, it will start assembling the pieces. And one day, I hope very soon, I'll wake up and it will tell me what the next step is and what to write. Well, Mr. Black, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Well, no, thank you. I appreciate the good questions and the patience while I ramble because I'm a little tired today. And I know that your editing skills will eventually turn this into a rattling narrative. It's my husband. He's gone missing. Missing? I'm terribly worried. It's just Fred's never been gone this long before. How long has he been missing? Since the funeral. Well, I can start right away. You're a private investigator? My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. That is a lot. That's a lot of blood. You beat people up and charge money? Yeah. Sad, isn't it? How much would you charge to beat up my friend Janet? What? How much you got? 30 bucks. That's good. This conversation is over. The mob is trying to spread its operation to Los Angeles. Somehow, my daughter Amelia is involved. Please, find her seen this girl was in for me oh we can do this the easy way we're currently doing it the easy way whatever happened to offering me 20 bucks it's the recession this is a high profile case made the newspapers where is amelia what the hell's going on oh you know there's a guy coming to kill us that kind of crap (laughs) hey can you behave like a professional i'm sorry She's in danger, man. We have to do something about it. She's dead. She's not dead. She's not dead. dead. Why do you think everyone involved with this case was dying? This is not you. You're not a murderer. You just killed three people. I know, but I'm saying deep down. Come in here. You beat up on me. It's part of the job. I accept it. But what did you do? You pissed me off.
before we go solving the crime of the century, let's deal with the rotting corpse. We got a plan. Run. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. You guys like the nice guys way more than me, don't you? No. No? I, I love it. Okay. I don't. I, I did, it left no, but I, I was quite disappointed uh, with it. Having seen all these, I remember seeing all these people on Facebook hype it to the absolute max. When I actually saw it, I it left no great impression on me. I thought it was good. I loved Gosling. I liked Crow as that tough guy. I liked their banter, but I thought it was pretty pretty light and didn't really leave a huge impression on me. It's certainly no Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or Last Boy Scout. That's for sure. Kiss my ass, Andrew. Always, <laughs> always. I mean, I, I'm impressed we've actually got through an hour and 23 minutes, Jeb, without having without, without disagreeing vehemently about a film. I was hoping you'd say that you really hated the hard way, but anyway, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've ever met in person and gotten along this well. So, yeah. <laughs> Jed, what is it about the nice guys that you like so much? It is. Probably my favorite Shane Black thing at all at this point, and, really? and it, it, it's eclipsing it's eclipsing Lethal Weapon uh, with every viewing. I mean, uh, it, it's just delightful. And I will I'll be honest. Part of that is probably that my kids respond to it so heavily, and I love watching it with my kids. I probably watch it two or three times a year with my kids and we just crack up the whole way through. Um, and it's another one like, like all of his movies really that, that I think rewards multiple viewings. It's, uh, uh, there's always something new coming out of it. It is just funny as hell. Um, it's like a Coen brothers movie that way, you know, the, the repeated bits of dialogue or, or, um, things like that, that, yeah, they're funny the first time, but, you know, shut the fuck up, Donnie, only becomes funnier when you've heard it 50 times. You know, when you've heard it 10 times, maybe in the movie, it's one thing. But when you've seen it over and over and over again, and the first thing you think, shut the fuck up, Donnie, anytime you hear, you know, something from the Big Lebowski, uh, that's the kind of relationship I have with uh, Kiss Kiss. I'm sorry, with the nice guys. I can't get enough of it. I've watched it three times through now, and it just always leaves me a little cold. I just never connect with it, and I don't know what it is. It's like I want to like it. I went in really wanting to like that movie, and I like certain parts of it. To me, there feels like a lot of L.A. Confidential in that movie, and probably it's because of Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger being in the movie. But when I saw a like confidential, like one of my fantasies was like, let's see Exley and White together again, fighting crime and doing stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of like Ellie confidential in that these two guys aren't friends, but eventually they will become friends and they'll part, they'll realize that they're good for each other and that they can partner up and like, okay, well, that, yeah, I guess that's there, but I just, I don't know. I'm always left cold after the movie. I'm just never getting into it enough. It just feels like it's trying to keep me at arm's length. On your recommendation, Jed, I will. I will dust it off. Actually, I don't own a copy. I wouldn't. I wouldn't own a copy of that film. But I will. 
I will stream it and watch it with my daughter because um, she likes these kind of movies, and I do re- I do relate to what you're saying about the joy of watching a film that your kids like. Yeah, but I'll let you know if she doesn't like it. Okay, all right. Well, don't don't yeah. Please please don't make me get into a, a, a adversarial relationship with your daughter. <laughs> 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 But Ryan Gosling's scream, I mean, if you don't laugh when Ryan Gosling emits a high-pitched scream uh, in that movie, I, I just wonder about your soul. It's like the daughter can come in in The Last Boy Scout when she does, and it kind of works for me because she's just such a shit as well as, um, you know, just like her. Yeah, she's a shit, and so is her dad, and pretty much everybody in that movie is a shit. Yep, yep. Whereas the daughter in Nice Guys is too much of a saint for me. And it's just like, okay. It's so her presence in the movie just bugs me. And it's not as bad as like the kid from Iron Man 3 or definitely not the magical autistic kid from Predator. But it just, it's like, okay, enough with the kids in the movies. I'm, I just, don't need it. When they announced that there was going to be a kid in Predator, I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake, just stop it. Unless unless the kid's for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that, girl, that girl who plays the um, – or that young woman, I should say, who plays the daughter in the nice guy. She's Australian, isn't she? Is she? Yeah. That Angorni – what's her name? Is that uh, – oh, I mostly know her from playing br- – Betty, I think, in the uh, Spider-Man movies. Um, the nice guy. Yeah, and Gorney Rice. Yeah, she's Australian. She actually goes to a school about one school up from my daughter's school. But there you go. That's my story about Gorney Rice. She's a big deal in Australia, obviously, because she was in a film with uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, Russell Crowe. Yeah. Is he a big deal in Australia? Look, he's a... He's a, he, he has a sort of strange a strange resonance in Australian culture because obviously he's been in some huge he's been in some huge films but he keeps quite a low profile and every now he'll then every now and again he'll pop up and say something like I'll oh, believe climate science and then he's a big deal for a little while then he just sort of disappears again yeah he's quite a big deal he's you know he's quite a big deal yeah yeah good yeah he single handedly bailed out a, a sort of working class football team. You know, um, football club a few years back Did that he? made a deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I think they made, a docu- they made a documentary about it. Is it still him and his tugboat going around the world fighting people? <laughs> no, is that Master and Commander? Have you seen the South Park episode? Yes, I've seen it. A hot-headed actor named Russell Crowe. He loves to act, but he loves one thing more. Fight around the world. You know these guys? Yes, I do. You knew they were doing this? Yes, I did. Did you cooperate with it? Um, they didn't ask me to cooperate with it. With it. <laughs> and what do you think? They are very, very funny men, and uh, I wish them Godspeed, and I hope they continue to do what they're doing. <laughs> for me, a lot of it's, you know, if there was something to, for me to learn from it, is um, the analogous thing, you know, because I did think the whole thing was a fight. I did think my whole career was a struggle, you know. He, he reached the height of his, of his, of his everything with me, with um, Proof of Life. One of those terrible trash films that I just think is stunning, in, is a stunning piece of entertainment in every single way. 
Uh, I'm not against Taylor Hackford in general. I preferred when he was doing stuff in Australia. I mean, the what was it? The Some of Us is that was that what it was called? Yeah, the back film. He's he was in a he's in the um the True History of the Kelly Gang. Apparently, he's yeah. supposed he's supposed to be. I haven't I haven't got around to seeing that yet, but he's supposed to be very good in that. I, I'm really excited to see that. I've not. I loved him in Proof. I thought Proof was one of the best movies that I'd seen in the 90s. He was great when he was younger. But I, I encourage you both, if you haven't already seen it, to check out Proof of Life. He plays okay. a hostage negotiator who's having a on-screen and also, of course, off-screen relationship with Meg Ryan. It's terrific. That was a big deal in Australia, Meg Ryan and, uh, and uh, Rusty. That was a big deal because it's every Australian male's fantasy to go out with a you know, U.S. famous female actor. Can I ask you guys, uh, I feel like I'm maybe missing um, uh, a reference in uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang when uh, Harmony is defending herself against the intruder that turns out to be Protocop. She grabs the bat and it says Wonder Girl on it, the same way uh, Robert Redford's bat says Wonder Boy in uh, The Natural. You know, it's like clearly carved into the bat. It wasn't like factory made that way not seen the natural in uh many many years but is there a is there more significance to it than uh than just hey she's she's kind of badass or uh what gosh no i don't know i have no idea damn it don't make me wish i'd done more research yeah it just made me think that it was a reference to the natural but i don't think i've ever actually watched the natural all the way through have a movie podcast though yeah right <laughs> what well, right do i have to talk about movies if i've never seen he's already the natural. Got the next podcast on proof of life all booked up already i just got a text from him taylor hackford's agreed to a uh to an interview already so <laughs> oh, i'd love to talk about the devil uh devil's advocate that's oh that's my God. favorite taylor hackford He's like, what else am I supposed to do? I'm on quarantine. Of course I'll give you that. It was either that or sing Imagine with Gail Godot. Uh, no thank you. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, one of my favorites, and I'm glad that uh, you guys don't mind it either. So, Andrew, when you're not in quarantine, what are you doing these days? Look, occasionally I jump in my red car and go around the deserted city and shoot at moving uh, shadows in the apartment building wind. Oh, hang on. Sorry. That's not, that's another month. Just doing the do. I'm just finished a third pulp history book with, with my co-editor Ian McIntyre. This one's going to be on radical science fiction from 1950 to 1985. So pretty happy about that. And if, um, if things don't completely collapse in the U.S., that will be coming out next year. That sounds fantastic. That is right in my wheelhouse. It was really exciting doing it. Unfortunately, or unfortunately, look, PM Press, the publisher, did give us a very strict order that it was to be shorter than the previous two books. Um, whereas, in actual fact, we could have we could have written a that. We could have actually. We I think it's got some beautiful writing in it. It's got some amazing covers in it. So the cover art is incredible. We could have filled a thousand pages of a book with with stuff on radical science fiction, and we still would have only scratched the surface. Where's the best place to keep up with you and your stuff? Probably my I'm on Twitter at, at Pop Curry, and I'm also got a website called uh, www.popcurry.com. That's P-U-L-P, 
C-U-R-R-Y. And I also have an Instagram account, which is called, if anyone can guess. Pulp Curry. Got you. Got it. Yes, because I'm brand. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to exact synergies from my branding. And Jed, what's going on with you? Uh, I'm just reading Andrew's blog. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to keep deleting all those obscene comments. <laughs> just don't delete the photos. Okay. <laughs> it's the same one, you and your underpants. Hey, man, I just keep wanting to get an invite to one of these sweet PM Press books. But, yeah, I got to get juicier, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a, oh yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, yep. that's what it should have said on the underwear was juicy. <laughs> Where's the juice? Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Like a shark, he looks for trouble. That's why the zeros double. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. He's suave and he's smooth and he can soothe you like vanilla. The gentleman's a killer. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Damoiselles in danger have filled the stranger's past. Like a knife, he cuts through life like every day's the last. He's fast and cool. From the school that loves and leaves them A pity if it grieves them Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang If you're in the arms of harm's way And think this kiss may be last You better make your way
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.